0: Hello friends, this is Andrew and this is our lecture on the canon of the New Testament. Um, This is something that is really important, but maybe you haven't thought about or interacted much with, or maybe you have, so that'll be a fun discussion to have in class when we do. One reminder is that since this is a hybrid class, we're going to want to make sure that you are engaging critically with this lecture because it's replacing what we might normally be doing in class. And also uh, be sure to take notes and write down any questions that you might have so that we can talk about them in class or you can shoot me an email or um, we can talk about it um, offline somehow. But basically this is uh, course material that is a fair game for quizzes and tests and things like that. And so I think it's important. That's why that's why uh, I'm giving it to you, and so just kind of to keep us honest, we need to make sure that that there's a, some way that I'm going to be checking to make sure that uh, that learning's happening. So that's what quizzes are typically for. So we'll go ahead and jump right in, but again, be sure to be taking notes and and uh, writing down any questions that you have. But basically, canon is a word that we don't use in everyday language, and so we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about about it. But really. First, I want to talk about why canon is important, and the reason it's important is because it answers the question, what guides the Christian faith, or really what guides one's faith in general, rather than kind of relying on my own thoughts that I have in my head, or maybe a cool conversation that I had one night over pizza, or a dream that I had, or a vision that I had. Um, for, uh, For Protestants, we say that the scriptures are god's word given to the church to guide the church's faith, beliefs and practice. And the reason why this is important is because if we have a different foundation, a different starting place in our understanding of what what the canon is and what scripture is, then we're going to end up in a different place in terms of our beliefs and our practices. And so an example of this you see often with Maybe Catholic friends um, that I have, for example, who have what's called the Apocrypha, which are some additional books that are written just before the time of Jesus or, uh, for example, you have also like uh, Mormon folks that have uh, the Book of Mormon that they'll add on to the, the New Testament and, and say this is a, another testament of Jesus Christ. And so, because of that, we end up in different places in terms of our belief. And I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that anyone's right or wrong or whatever. What I am saying is that that's one of the reasons why we're gonna, why I'm gonna differ with them in terms of my, my faith and practice. And, and so, it's just important to get this, um, to get this solidified from the get-go, understanding what we're talking about in this class when we talk about the New Testament. And again, I'd be glad to, talk to anybody who wants to talk, you know, has a different opinion. I think that'd be a really fun discussion to have. But um, they could maybe illustrate this using uh, a conversation I had with a Jehovah's Witness lady that uh, walked, was coming by the house a week ago, and she was saying, you know, yeah, do you want to come to a Bible study? And I said, I said I'd love to discuss more about Jehovah's Witness faith, but I th- I think uh, maybe a Bible study isn't really going to help me so much just because when you and I say the word Bible we're talking about two different things and uh, the reason that I said that is because Jehovah's Witnesses have this particular translation that they use it's called the New World Translation the NWT and it's based on their own translations of particular passages that I don't necessarily agree with and so she has actually kind of a different Bible than I would than I would want to use and so she said you know well, if we have a disagreement, we just need to go to the, the Bible to to settle our disagreements. And I said, I think that's a great idea. But just when we're using that word Bible, we're talking about two different things. And so I just don't think that the Bible is going to help just turning to a passage in the Bible is going to help us settle our differences. And I don't quite, I'm not quite sure that she fully understood. And, and, and I kept saying, you know, I really would like to talk to you, but I just don't think that turning to the Bible is really going to help us. Um... And so anyway, so this is just an example of we're both using the word Bible, but we mean a different thing. And the canon is what helps us understand what is considered, quote, the Bible or the scriptures, what's going to be guiding faith and practice. And so most religions are guided by a set of scriptures, of sacred documents, basically. And that's, that basically means that these are writings that are accepted as sacred in some way, they're going to be considered uh, documents that are guiding the, the practices, the beliefs, the faith of a particular community. And so for Christians, um, historically, what that's looked like is the Old and New Testament. Um, the, and so these are what are considered scriptures. And the canon helps us answer the question, what is scripture? What are those standard Documents. So the canon indicates those books that are scripture, which are the standard by which Christian life and teaching is judged. So just kind of definitions, right? What is a canon? What does that word mean? And well, what means rule or standard or norm? And so what that means is like, for example, if we were if I was trying to say, like, my hand is five inches long um, and you're saying, well, you know, your hand is six inches long. Well, we would pull out a ruler right and we'd measure it and um, what is it actually uh, we'd both be wrong because it's seven and a half inches long but so this would be um it comes from the idea of canon comes from the uh the idea of measuring something and saying okay this is this this is actually what it is and so why that's important for uh christian faith is number one these are the books that are accepted as the standard these are the books that are accepted as the standard for faith and practice in Christian faith, and what that means for us is that these are accepted as scripture. Because scripture in a Christian in the Christian tradition is um, what that what's that which is given by God to guide the faith of the church. So the particular canon that uh, we're using in this class that's going to be found in found in most New Testaments um, that we're we're talking so specifically about the New Testament here was confirmed at the councils of Hippo and Carthage in the fourth century. And we're gonna talk a little bit about what that process looked like, just so that you have an awareness of kind of the struggling and the wrestling that went into putting together these particular sets of writings that are uh, that are included in the New Testament. Another way of thinking about this maybe visually would be if you have this circle, right? And think of it like as kind of a container and the the container represents the canon. And everything that is in that container of canon is considered scripture, and scripture is that which is given to the given to the church by God to guide its faith and practice. And so, when we're saying, "How do I know what guides the Christian faith? How do I know what to do? What do I know? How do I know what is a what it means to live a godly life? What's going to happen when I die? Who is God? All of those things." Um, that's answered in Scripture. How do we know what Scripture is? Canon. So, what is Scripture? Basically, I want to kind of talk about this from a little bit of a historical perspective, and talk about how the idea of Scripture kind of developed, right? Because Christianity is is very is, uh, u- is is somewhat unique in its emphasis on Scripture, and so, I, like I said, a lot of different religions and groups. Uh, communities of faith have what they'd call scriptures, but the the Christian faith is very unique in that it continually keeps it's it's very uh, scripture focused. And so a lot uh there we're always turning to the scriptures to see what it is that um what it is that God wants us to do, for example, or God wants us to believe. Uh, at least that's that's our interpretation. So uh, I'm going to use this term, the terms Old Testament and Hebrew Bible. Um, I'm going to use them kind of interchangeably. Hebrew Bible, um, I've been encouraged to use that by some some mentors of mine uh, because of the fact that it honors, for example, those people that are outside the Christian faith that they, they say, why are you calling, for example, like a Jewish person might say, you know, why are you calling my Bible the Old Testament? To me, it's just the Testament. You know, it's just it's just my Bible because they don't hold to the, the New Testament as being scripture, for example. And so it kind of respects those people with a different perspective. And so I like I like that idea of, of respecting their views and, and respecting their claiming of these texts as their own as well. So just so that you're not confused, I use those terms interchangeably. But basically, what we see is that around the time of Jesus and just before that, we have this growing awareness of the Hebrew Bible being used as, the, as authoritative texts. Um, and we even see that earlier, for example, with the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, what are also called the, the Torah, the law uh, referred to as well. The, we see that these are documents that people keep turning to. So example, like the Jews keep turning to to say, how, how am I supposed to live? What are the guidelines for living life? How should I understand God? Where is this world going? All of those things, they're turning to these these texts for guidance in order to find out how it is that God wants them to live. Now, right around the time of Jesus and just before, we have, for example, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a community, you know, we almost call it like a, a monastery type of community that retreated from normal society and lived in a, in a, Compound basically what we think about today, out by the uh, by the Dead Sea, and these people we we see in their documents, and you can go and buy a copy of the Dead Sea you know Dead Sea Scrolls translated into English on Amazon. You see a an idea that they see themselves as a part in this unfolding story that the Old Testament tells, and they their. Seeing themselves as kind of the the final faithful remnant of God's people, and that God will one day come, the God of Israel will one day come and vindicate them and uh, help them to uh, basically be put in a place of prominence over the over Israel and over the entire world. so you see that in the Dead Sea Scrolls well the important thing to notice about that number one is they keep going they're still using these the the Hebrew Bible. As an authoritative group of documents, an authoritative grouping of documents, but they're also saying that the worldview that is a part of the Hebrew Bible, the worldview that's talked about here, for example, the God of Israel coming to to kind of set the world right, that that kind of thing, and to judge the judge sinners and to up, uphold righteousness. That, that is the authoritative way. That's the, the way that the world actually is. The way that the world should be understood is from the perspective of the Hebrew Bible. And so that's really interesting because a lot of times when we think about how do we use the Bible and how do we think about the Bible, we think, okay, you know, maybe you know, we open it up and when we're trying to settle an argument with my Jehovah's Witness friend or whatever, then we, you know, quote a verse to, and we argue back and forth using verses like, we well, Romans 1 says this, well, Romans 9 says this, and we are going back and forth in that way. But an even more significant way, I think, of understanding how scripture was used in this early time was that it shaped the fundamental worldview of people. It shaped their worldview in the sense of asking questions about where is the world going? How should I live? Who is God answering these really significant questions of life and where is my place in all of that? So I want, I want you to, to understand that there's, there's this developing understanding of how scripture uh, was, was uh, used and how it guided faith and practice. We also have something called the pseudepigraphy. You're gonna read about this in your textbook. Basically, the the word pseudepigrapha, it means um, kind of like falsely ascribed, like written, written, kind of the idea is like written in a false name. And what that is talking about is the fact that there are people that came around and were writing books in other people's names because they thought that writing books in someone else's name, like Solomon, for example, one of the kings of Israel, writing a book in Solomon's name would give the book more authority. And so, I mean, it would just be like, for example, if I were to write a letter and sign it you know donald trump or, or something like that um and let's say people thought that that was really from donald trump they would they would consider it or a, a better example maybe it's like twitter right because uh the president's on twitter a lot if i tweet something no one cares but let's say i hacked donald trump's twitter account and started tweeting things from him maybe some people still wouldn't care but other people would and would consider what i was saying more significant and so it was kind of like that. People would write works in the, in the describing it to Solomon or Enoch or things like that because they were trying to put their work in the framework of this worldview that we were already talking about and picking up on some of the themes that the Hebrew Bible was talking about. And, and to me, that demonstrates that they were considering the Hebrew Bible as a very authoritative way of understanding the world and what God is doing in the world and their place in it. We also see in the Gospels, if, um, as I do, that you consider if you consider them an accurate record of, of history, that um, Jesus quotes various parts of the Hebrew Bible to settle to the speech. So this is kind of maybe the more standard way that we would think about it. And if you go to Matthew 22, so one thing to also note about these lectures is I want you to have your Bible in front of you and looking at it. Um, Matthew 22, verse 44, we'll just go to that whole passage. That's starting in verse 41. The Pharisees basically are, are questioning Jesus. And the uh, so verse 41 says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, if then David calls him Lord, how is he son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And so this uh, Jesus here is citing from Psalm one ten one, Psalm one ten one, and he's citing it kind of in the way that he's referring to it in kind of the way that we would traditionally think of as you know maybe to settle a theological dispute about the identity of the expected deliverer of Israel, the son of David. But one thing to notice is both Jesus and the Pharisees accepted that this was a a good practice, that it was an acceptable practice to go, well, let's turn to the scriptures, let's turn to the psalms in this case, and to settle this argument the Pharisees didn't go, well, that's just from the Psalms. Who cares what the Psalms are saying? They're saying, oh, no, no, there's, they're recognizing that there's authority in this. And so what Jesus does is he cites that text authoritatively to settle a kind of a theological point with the Pharisees. So that's, that's what we want to notice there. Jesus also refers to various parts of the Hebrew Bible, for example, Exodus 3, 6, as words from God. So he quotes the Hebrew Bible, he quotes Exodus and he says this is what God is saying. And so that's an important thing to notice as well. He also refers to uh, a citation from the Hebrew Bible as Scripture in Mark 12 10. Another thing that we see, so turning again to the New Testament, is that Paul also considers the Hebrew Bible to be authoritative teaching. So if we go to 2 Timothy um, and you'll be able to do this after you take your canon quiz uh, very easily, unless you already know. let Second Timothy, toward the back of your Bible. Second Timothy three 16, 2 Timothy three sixteen. Paul says this: All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so the important thing to note here is that Paul is referring, he's talking about scripture, but he's referring to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible, and he is saying that everything that we consider to be scripture, uh, everything that is in the Hebrew Bible, is breathed out by God, is God's words, and is profitable, so is useful for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, and so what he's saying is that whatever it is, so, so what we do with that as Christians is we say, well he was talking about the Old Testament, but anything then that is considered scripture, anything that's in that within that circle of canon, the scriptures, right, anything that's in there is also God's word and is also um, uh, profitable, as useful for teaching, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And so that is, that's where we kind of go in order to start saying, well, the New Testament is also, um, uh, is also God's word as well, but we'll get there in a minute. With Paul as well, similar to the Dead Sea community, the, the, um, we see that Paul is using the worldview of the Hebrew Bible to also talk about kind of what's the fate of the world and where's the world going, that kind of stuff. And we see that especially, for example, in Romans and Galatians, where he's really wrestling through kind of the storyline of what God has done with Israel and trying to see how the Gentiles fit into that. And so he doesn't just abandon, when, when Gentiles start coming to the church, he doesn't just kind of abandon the worldview of the Hebrew Bible. He tried, He's struggling to understand how does what God is doing now fit with the worldview of the Hebrew Bible. So that's an important thing to notice, and that's something that's similar to the Dead Sea community. So in order to talk about, so we talked about the Hebrew Bible as scripture, right? That's all we just talked about, and how they used the Hebrew Bible to guide their understanding of the world and what God was doing in the world and also for, to, to, to settle theological disputes, to guide them ethically, to know how they're supposed to live. So we turn to the story of the early church to start understanding how is it that the New Testament started to be understood as scripture. So just kind of starting from the beginning, Jesus died around 30 AD and he didn't leave any writings that we're aware of um, his ministry was mainly to his uh, disciples, his followers at that time. And so remember Matthew 28, right? The the Great Commission is what CBU is all about. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So they did that. They went out and they started talking about Jesus with people. They started sharing the gospel. People were becoming followers of Jesus. People were committing their lives to following him. And the, uh, so so still no writings, right? Except for example, someone like Paul, he goes and he plants a church, he starts a church, he gets some believers started in a particular city, and then he goes on to the next city. Well, he might hear, for example, he hears about like a dispute or something like that, an argument that's going on or another group that came in and is is teaching something different than he did after. This is for example, like the book of Galatians. And he writes him a letter and tells him, whoa, whoa, put the, put the brakes on. This is not what I told you. This is not what I taught you. You need to go back to what I originally told you about what it means to follow Jesus. And so he write, he's writing these letters, writing these letters. Eventually, those writings began to be recognized as authoritative teaching, as the word of God, and were included in the, their understanding of what scripture is. And so we have letters, like for example, letters of Paul, gospel, more letters. So like James, Jude, first, second, third John, uh, Etc. and then one apocalypse. And we're gonna eventually get to what an apocalypse is. It's a very special category of writing, but it doesn't fit. It's not a letter or a gospel necessarily. So we have all these writings that are, are going on. They're written for believers to encourage their faith. So the Bible's not like a handbook of theology or anything like that. These are actually letters that are, letters and documents written to particular people particular groups of people, communities of faith at particular times for a particular reason. And so, like I said, eventually the church starts gathering these all together. And here's the really interesting thing we see in 2 Peter chapter three. So if you uh, go again, 2 Peter's toward the back of your Bible, it's after James, it's after 1 Peter, (laughs) obviously. 2 Peter 3.16. 2 Peter 3:16. Let's go up to verse 14, where Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, by Jesus, without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So he's saying, he's saying, um, be found at peace, I'm encouraging you to do the same thing that Paul does in his letters. So Peter's talking about Paul's letters now. He says, there are some things in them in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So this is, a, is very interesting because it shows that even as early as Peter's writing in the first century, there is an awareness that scriptures no longer are just the hebrew bible but also paul's letters are included in those scriptures as well he's saying paul's writings it says paul's writings and the other scriptures which he would be referring to the hebrew bible so this is v- this is very very intriguing and this is a very kind of bold statement that the the early church began to include Paul's letters and other writings. That means that the canon, which was once thought to be closed, is now open and other stuff is that circle is open and other stuff is getting added in there. So we have all these writings floating around from the early church and some of them are from apostles, the early followers of Jesus, who were witnesses to Jesus's resurrection and some of them aren't, and some of them fit with the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, and some of them don't. So how, does, how do we get the particular writings, the particular documents that we have in the New Testament? Well, there were some early conflicts over who is Jesus, right? Um, what's his relationship to God the Father? Is Jesus 100% God? Is Jesus just a man? Is Jesus 50% God, 50% man? How are all these things working out? What's Jesus' relationship to the the Old Testament? Or what is Christianity's relationship to the Old Testament? All these questions start uh, floating around, and that kind of leads us to start thinking about, well, where are we going to answer these questions? How are we going to answer these questions of faith and practice? How do we know what we're supposed to believe? And so you see these discussions beginning in the early church of, which books are considered scripture They have they are you, you can see in the early church documents from the uh, from the, the third century, for example, discussions of well these this book is uh, this book's accepted, this one isn't. And around the time of the fourth century, the 300s AD is when we start seeing some real kind of landing the plane on the discussion, and we get to this guy named Athanasius, and Athanasius is where we first see a complete picture of the New Testament that we have today. So this is around um, 350 years, something like that, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He was a bishop, he was a basically a early church leader, and he writes this letter, and he says in this letter, says again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament, these are the four gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So those are the four gospels. Afterwards, the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles called Catholic. So um, what we're going to call the general epistles in this class, they're calling the Catholic epistles. And he's not meaning Roman Catholic, but the word Catholic also means universal. And so he's saying the the universal epistles, the epistles that are not written to a particular church, but are written to maybe the the church at large or to a, a, a larger group of believers. So the epistles called Catholic seven. He's saying there's seven general or Catholic epistles. James, Peter, John, um, three letters by John. So he's saying two, two letters by Peter, three letters by John, one by Jude. There's also the 14 epistles of Paul. We'll talk about that in a minute because there's probably only 13 written in this order. First to the Romans, two to the Corinthians then to the Galatians then the Ephesians then the Philippians Colossians after these two to the Thessalonians and that to the Hebrews and again two to Timothy one to Titus and lastly that to Philemon and besides the revelation of John so if you add all those up that gets you 27 books and those are the 27 books that we have in our new testament that we're using for this class side note the book of Hebrews So one of the reasons why it gained such widespread acceptance early on is because a lot of folks thought that it was written by Paul. There were other folks that didn't think it was written by Paul. So it was kind of contested. And the reason why people, at least today, struggle to think that it was written by Paul is number one, there's the author of the letter doesn't identify, um, doesn't identify themselves. And so, and Paul, in all of his letters, identifies himself because it's an important part of his authority is that he's Paul, an apostle sent by God, sent by Jesus Christ on mission for God. But the author of Hebrews doesn't do that. The other thing is that the content of Paul's letter or Paul, of Paul's letters typically has to do with how, do, how does the whole Gentile thing work? How does the whole non-Jew thing work? How does that work with what God with told Israel. How does that, how does Jesus fit into God's plan for the world? All of those kind of things. And the epistle to Hebrews doesn't really talk about that. And so you might, uh, and it talks about like the, the uh, priesthood, the temple, those kind of things, but not as much the law, not as much the Gentile thing. So, that leads people to believe probably that the Book of Hebrews was not written by Paul. I'm kind of inclined in that direction, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna die on that hill. So anyway, so early on though, it was thought that this book was written by Hebrews, and you can even probably see like maybe in an old version of the Bible, the KJV or older manuscripts so the King James version or older manuscripts of the Bible, it's called you know Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews. So uh, that's just kind of like an interesting point there. and We're gonna talk a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. But I want you to see how did Athanasius in the 4th century, even as early as the 4th century, understand what it meant to call these um, the books of the New Testament. What did it mean for him to say that? He says, these are the fountains of salvation that they they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take out from these. For concerning these, the Lord put to shame the Sadducees and said, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures. And he reproved the Jews, saying, Search the scriptures, for these are they that testify of me. So he's saying that they're the fountains of salvation. Salvation, how do I know how to be rescued from, uh, how to be delivered from the wrath of God? Well, the source of that of that understanding comes from the scriptures. How do I know how to live a godly life? He's saying this is found in the scriptures in the New Testament, in the books that he just listed. So that's how he understands what the scriptures are, is that they're the source of salvation, of understanding how to be forgiven of sin, and delivered from the wrath of God, and how should I live my life? So what we've been saying, standard of faith and practice. Now, I want you to see this as well. It's not like they didn't have other options, right? Of books that they could have included in the in the New Testament in the canon. He says for greater exactness I add this also, writing of necessity that there are other books besides these that are not and not indeed included in the canon, but appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us. So he's saying this is there are other books we didn't include them in the canon uh, in in the the authoritative documents, but these are things that we think are good for new believers, for new followers of Jesus to read. He says, uh, for those who newly the us and who for wish wish for instruction in the word of godliness, the wisdom of Solomon, and the wisdom of Sirach, and Esther, so that's kind of an interesting thing, Esther, and Judith, and Tobit, and that which is called the teaching of the apostles, also we, we would call it today the Didache, and the shepherd, the shepherd of Hermas, but the former my brethren are included in the canon, that the latter being merely read. Nor is there any place, in any place a mention of the apocryphal writings. But they, the apocryphal writings, are an invention of heretics, who write them when they choose, bestowing upon them their approbation and assigning to them a date, that so, using them as ancient writings, they may find occasion to lead astray the simple." And so what he's saying is that there are these books They're good books to be, there's some good good books to be read. There are other books that, like I was saying, kind of are written as though they were written by someone else. That's like my example of tweeting as though I was Donald Trump. Um, They, and he's saying that those ones, the ones that are written in a false name, are not really to be, uh, to be used. They're the writing of heretics. They're the writing of what he would consider to be false teachers. And so I just want you to know that there were, other options out there. And they made a conscious decision to include these books in the New Testament. So we just said that the early church had this discussion and recognized the canon, the authoritative documents, the authoritative writings that are scripture based on several criteria. The first one, orthodoxy. So they're asking the question, does this this writing fit with the the teaching that I have received from my teachers and that they receive from their teachers and they receive from their teachers and they receive from Jesus, going all the way back to Jesus and his original disciples. Does this fit with the teaching that we've received? And so there are some books that had teaching in them that did not fit with the teaching they received and those ones they said, okay, those do not belong in the New Testament. Apostolicity, so that's connection to an apostle, connection to an early follower of Jesus who was witness witness to the resurrection, sent by Jesus as an early as a as a leader in the church to go on mission and to spread the good news about Jesus. So apostolicity is there a connection to an apostle? So for example, we have some books in the New Testament. Um, Matthew, if you hold to the idea that Matthew was written by the disciple of Jesus, Matthew. Um, another example is Paul being an apostle, another example would be John, so these are all books that are written by apostles writing with the authority of God, writing scripture. You also have books like Mark and Luke, for example, that are written by people that aren't apostles, but we know that they had that these individuals had a connection to an apostle and were probably writing informed by the teaching of the apostles. And so the idea is that the apostles were around as kind of a a way to authenticate the true teaching within those texts. And so they're not written by some dude up in the mountains making up ideas, they're written uh, by someone with a connection to an apostle who could have verified the teaching antiquity. So is it old? So this is why, for example, something like maybe the the Didache um, would not be included in the scriptures, in the canon of the New Testament, because it was written later. It was written really early, but still written later. Or maybe the works of, you know, uh, Irenaeus or something like that, one of the early church fathers. They're really good stuff, but they're not considered God's word. They're not considered Scripture, they're, they're not considered authoritative writings to guide the faith and practice of the church. And then Catholicity, so again this is that word, the different use of the word Catholic uh, to mean universal, is there, was there widespread acceptance? And so there were some books that there were disagreements about early on in the church. So, for example, the book of Hebrews, because the authorship was contested, they didn't know was this written by Paul? Was this written by somebody else? So, there was there widespread acceptance, though. And those books that are most widely, that were most widely accepted, are the the ones that made it into the New Testament canon. Here's an interesting thing: is a guy did a study. Uh, this kind of scholarly dude did a study and he found that the works that are quoted most often by early church leaders we call these the apostolic fathers the early fathers of the church these are the works that made it into the canon so there was there's this basically process going on where the early church is recognizing and using those books that are considered that, that are, are recognized as authoritative teaching. So we see them citing these works as an authority in their own writing. And those that are cited most often by the early church are the ones that were included included in the canon to, in, in general. So there are some alternate views of canon, and this isn't to, this is actually to kind of give credence to number one, the process that came a bit through which the canon arose so the process just kind of showing there were different ideas out there there this wasn't just like a happenstance kind of thing it was an intentional choice of particular documents to be included to guide the faith of the church the faith and practice of the church and an important player in all of this is a uh, name is uh, Marcion he was an early uh, he was an early church dude um, and he had this particular idea that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God uh, that is revealed in Jesus and he had this serious problem with the 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 Old Testament and with anything really Jewish and so what he did is he took and said, you know we don't we don't need to consider the old testament as as scripture we don't need to consider that as guiding our faith and practice but uh, there's this New Testament and I, and he took out all of the parts in it that were somewhat Jewish. And he said, this is what should be guiding our faith and practice is these books that are stripped of all the Jewish the Jewish type of you know, themes or, or anything like that. And he said, this is what should be. So interesting thing is that uh, Marcion actually is part of the reason why we even have a New Testament canon because that generated discussions about, again, what's Jesus's, what's the church's relationship to The Old Testament. Who is Jesus? What document should we be turning to to guide our faith and practice? The Eastern Church, so the Eastern Orthodox Church, different in different places, has other books that are included. So I think I looked it up in, I think the Armenian Orthodox, not Armenian, Armenian Orthodox Church, in our, you know, what we call Armenia, something like that they have third corinthians so there's first and second corinthians but they have third corinthians the ethiopian orthodox church uh, i think includes the book of enoch which we don't include in their bible and so all this is to kind of show this is also to show respect for there's other ways that this question has been answered and uh, you know i this is the the answer that i'm presenting to you But is by no means the only one and so i just kind of want to start to try to generate some thinking and maybe you know someone who is eastern orthodox or ethiopian orthodox or something like that and you can have a a educated conversation with them about this and I, i mean i feel like that would be kind of fun the catholic church for example we've already mentioned them they have the apocrypha and that was kind of added in accepted as official of the Council of Trent, in the 16th century uh, in response to the Protestant Reformation. Again, another approach to canon and to understanding what the canon is, what the authoritative um, standard is for faith and practice. Thomas Jefferson, he's kind of an interesting one. I don't know, a lot of people think of the Founding Fathers as these like, as these really strong Christian dudes or something like that. <laughs> and um, Thomas Jefferson was kind of Like not really what you think of as a a strong follower of Jesus. He had a real problem with the idea of miracles, and so he went through and he got a Bible and he went through and some scissors or something like that, and he cut out all of the miraculous things in the Bible, and he said, yeah, this should be our Bible, is the Bible with all the miracles cut cut out of it, and so he has a different understanding of what should be considered authoritative for guiding the faith and practice of the church. I've already mentioned things like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that uh, that have also different, even more different views. Now this guy's really interesting, Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar. He's a real sharp dude. I, I really enjoy his work and he basically he grew up conservative Christian guy, went off, he went to Bible college I think, Wheaton or something like that, and then went and did his PhD at, I think it was Princeton and studied under some very sharp people and basically started he fell away from his faith in Jesus because of issues like this saying well why is it that why is it that the it's this version of the new testament that we're using why aren't why are not the other documents included in the new testament that that kind of stuff as he kind of discovered these these discussions then he became upset and now kind of is has dedicated his life to kind of tear, tearing um tearing apart traditional christian arguments for the reliability of the new testament and things like that and he's a really good writer um he he has this real talent for taking very complicated ideas and making them very accessible to people and so i really look up to him for that reason i think that that's a really great thing more people that are interacting with the bible the better i think in my opinion more people that are thinking critically about their faith i'm all for that stuff but he kind of does it in a way that is kind of like do you believe what these people think you know (laughs) like can you believe that crazy stuff (laughs) and um and so kind of like saying like no rational person you know would believe in miracles or would think that you can verify the miracles ever happen and no people, no rational people would believe in you know, the resurrection of Jesus or would believe that god spoke through the authors of of the new testament and that kind of thing so he's a, if you want to kind of see a, a real interesting work you know Bart Ehrman stuff is is definitely is definitely uh, a good response to <laughs> to the things that we've been talking about so I kind of just wanted to outline a few three challenges to the traditional understanding of Canon that I've been talking about just so that you can kind of see maybe what my perspective is and how I might respond to some of these challenges Again, there's probably other challenges that are out there too, and if you have some, I'd love to hear about them, and we can talk about them definitely, but these are the ones that I that I came up with, and these are my responses, or maybe the ways that the church has typically responded to this, and so number one, here's just one idea, the canon is only special because the church chose to make it so, and so there people who say this would be saying, well, like anyone can just put a bunch of books and letters together and say these are special and they're God's word, and this is interesting. Um, basically the response would be that the early church believed that it was actually just recognizing those works that had been given by God for the good of the church to guide the faith and practice of the church, and so that the councils councils of Hippo and Carthage in the late 4th century just formalize what the early church had already practiced. And you can actually see this. If you look in the writings of the early church fathers, you see them again, citing scripture as an authority in their arguments and turning to them to say like, these are the things that the implication being that these are the things that should be guiding our beliefs. And so it's not that a group of folks just got together and said, oh, we're just gonna call these, call these special. We actually see a, an early awareness right? The passage that I showed you from 2 Peter. And we also uh, see, an, well sorry, we have seen early awareness and an early recognition that the canon has opened up again, that there's other documents that should be included and that should be guiding the church's faith and practice. And so it's not just special because they said it was so, there's a universal generally recognition of the specialness of these documents and advocacy for their inclusion in the New Testament. So another challenge could be. Um, this one's kind of um, I like it because it's kind of um, you know I'm a kind of a you know rebellious guy or whatever, and so I like I like this idea and say like the man you know got together the, the dominant faction of the early church took control of the discussion at these councils, for example, and dis- uh, and accepted only those books that agreed with their own beliefs, and so they're they're saying that these really these powerful people. Got together and said, "Well, only the things that fit with my understanding of who God is and who Jesus was. We're going to only accept those as the authoritative uh, writings to guide our faith and practice." And the uh, they're basically challenging that idea that um, that uh, regarding the appropriateness of of choosing the documents based on the teaching that had been received from the apostles that had been passed down from the apostles and so what I'd say to that is that the early church chose to recognize those works that fit with the teaching they'd received from their teachers which had been passed down for centuries and so really it goes this someone someone who's saying this I I don't know if we'd be able to come to to an agreement because they're saying well no Christianity should be kind of like anybody's game there's not like a there's not a true version of Christianity Um, and so what I'm saying is, well, I think there is like kind of a true, a true vein, a uh, that had been passed down through the centuries, and that the writings were that were chosen were those that fit with that true vein, that cohered with that true vein, and the ones that weren't included were the uh, ones that didn't fit, or for or for one of the other reasons that we talked about, it wasn't universally accepted, and so on and so forth and then just finally challenge number three the books of the new testament were not written by the people that they're named for so for example we had the issue of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews or someone might say that um, Paul didn't write the book of Ephesians even though it says in there that you know this is a letter from Paul they were doing that pseudopigrapha thing or writing in the name of someone else and I respond to this and say well, not all books of the New Testament met those four criteria that we talked about. So, not all were written by apostles, not all were super early, like the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, that was written fairly late in the 90s AD, like maybe even 95, as late as that. And so, these were kind of guidelines and criteria that were used, but there are some books that didn't fit that. And so, the way that we kind of understand this in the Protestant tradition is we say that really you have to trust if you're holding that that the canon is the contains the correct writings that we should be understanding as the as guiding the faith and practice of the church the the early church regardless of how or why they made the decision that they did that the 27 books that they chose that god was guiding them in that process that god was a part of that process and that they chose the works that god wanted to guide his church that were his words to the church and so that's that's kind of an interesting thing and if that's a struggle for you then definitely we can I want to talk with you about that because that's something that I've struggled with a lot as well but as a Protestant I'm committed to this idea that the books that the church chose were the ones that God wanted To be chosen and God wanted to be included in the New Testament. So, just kind of a thought question, a fun thought question to uh, work with is this idea of canon. And think about this what if we discovered, is what it's supposed to say, what if we discovered new letters of Paul? What if we were doing an archaeological dig or someone was in their attic in Israel or something like that? and found this letter and that claims to be written by Paul and we'll kind of go a little further there's a little bit of evidence for something like this in the new testament itself we see first corinthians chapter 5 verse 9 so first corinthians right so is in the first letter of Paul written to the corinthians in this he says this i wrote to you in my letter not letter what letter I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people." And he goes on, so so on and so forth. It is, that's an interesting passage for a lot of other reasons as well, but um, he's saying, I wrote to you in my letter, but I thought this was the first Corinthians letter, the first letter to the Corinthians. If I lo- look in my Bible, it says, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. I mean, that's just what the editors added on, but so what letter is he talking about? Like, would that be zero Corinthians or negative one Corinthians or something like that? I don't know but the it looks like Paul wrote another letter to the Corinthians and he but we don't have it it's been lost presumably and so the question is if we were to find a book or a letter written by Paul if we were to find zero Corinthians should we just open up our Bibles and just you know stick it right in there kind of an addendum or something like that So some people might say yes. So someone like Bart Ehrman would say, well, you know, yeah. And then, you know, also add in the gospel of Thomas and the apocalypse of Peter and like all this other stuff, you know, the gospel of Mary and the gospel of Judas and all this other stuff. Um, But what I would say is based on this idea here that um, God worked through the early church to recognize those works he wanted to guide his church. God didn't work through the church at that time to include zero corinthians and so there's i'm trusting that there's a reason for that so definitely if we found zero corinthians i would be so interested in it and i would read it but we wouldn't look to it as god's word we wouldn't look to it as scripture as guiding our faith and practice and the the reason that this is really important is because all the time people are finding or claiming to find ancient documents right that have something to do with the faith of the early church that are somehow connected to the early church and everyone gets really freaked out right so there was a a couple years ago there was a a news story that came out about the gospel of Jesus's wife and I think that it was even uh, found out to be a, a hoax that someone had kind of you know gotten some old some really old papyrus or something like that and had written on it and there's no there's no way to really know like for sure for sure how old something is so for example if you were to take some fibers you know from that papyrus and you were to test them you know using radio carbon dating you know it would show that they were thousands of years old and so number 1 you know we don't ever really know for sure what is what is actually old what would actually be from the first century number 2 The church didn't decide to include those in the canon originally so the canon is from a a protestant christian perspective the canon is closed and that's not it's not going to reopen again just like athanasius said don't add anything don't take anything away and so that's why there's there's from a from a historical historical traditional christian understanding there's some problems with groups such as um like mormonism or jehovah's well jehovah's doesn't do this but Mormonism for example, where they have these additional books that were, um, that have been added is that we'd say, well, we're not gonna accept those as authoritative for guiding the faith and practice of the church. So just a fun little thought question. That would be a really good question that someone like me might ask you on a quiz or a test or something like that to talk about the issue of Canon, hint, hint. So you might wanna think about that. So bibliography, right so this is kind of like some of the works that I relied on in putting this together and if you're really really interested if you're a nerd like me and you want to read more about it there's some really good books that have been written about the issue of canon these are just a few but I Bruce this is kind of a classic the classic work um, that you know it's like a seminary textbook it's the canon of scripture from 88. Um, uh, Bruce Metzger the canon of the new testament and uh, D.A. Carson and Doug Moo, An Introduction to the New Testament. If you're looking for a book that gives you a that's kind of like a beefed up version of your textbook this is a good one um, and I and I think we may have it in the library I'm not sure can't remember but if you again so if you're looking for more information those are some good places you can also talk to me I'd love to talk to you about this I love and if you disagree with me even better I'd love to hear what your disagreement is and we can talk about it and maybe we'll come to a common understanding maybe i'll change my opinion maybe you'll change yours who knows but that's part of the joy of learning so again questions write them down email me bring them up in class we're gonna have a little bit of time to talk about this when we get together